Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 328 of Charlotte Rue's podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah Rue, and we have got a wonderful lineup for you today. Yeah, we're excited to feature debut author Alex Kennett and her novel, What Meets the Eye, which is the first in the Kate Miles private detective series. It's a book that combines her interest in oil painting, art forgery, and murder. Yeah, this was a re- that was a really interesting conversation. It's kind of crazy how all of those things kind of, you know, combine to create a big mystery. <laughs> Uh, we're excited to share that with you guys. And next we have a two minute tip with Charlotte Litt and that's from Kathy Collins. And the title of that is called symbols in writing. Yeah. And we also have a a interesting, uh, audio blog post here today by author Robert Young. And, and the post is flying and writing without discipline, expect a crash landing. Uh, we'll hear about his book where he flew his little plane all the way across the U S met a lot of people and, uh, uh, obviously, you don't want to crash when you're doing that, uh, but he, he took that idea and turned it into a blog post. Yeah, I'm excited to hear from Captain Bob, as I think he <laughs> also <laughs> is called. Um, and then we're going to finish up today with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and tell you a little bit about what's coming in the next episode. Yeah, and first, uh, what's up with the podcast books? If you hadn't heard, uh, listeners, we've created uh, eight uh quote books and what we're calling the right quote series for release in 2023. These books cover a variety of topics uh, that uh, were discussed on the first four and a half years of the podcast. And we are really excited to share these quotes. Yeah, we are. We've been working hard on this series and we're super excited to share it with you. Um, There's lots of inspirational and practical quotes in there. We've pulled them from over 500 podcast interviews with authors who are hardworking, award-winning, New York Times bestsellers, working in all sorts of different genres, coming from over 33 U.S. states and five different countries. Yeah, it's a really amazing collection of wisdom. I mean, there's so many great golden nuggets, I like to call them. I feel like that's a great way to put a lot of this, these inspirational words from so many great authors. I mean, we have people like David Baldacci, um, Steve Berry, Lisa Jewell, John Hart, Ron Rash, CJ Box, Craig Johnson, Wiley Cash. I could keep going on and on and on, um, but so many good ones. A lot of North Carolina favorites too, like Charlie Lovett, Judy Goldman, um, and a lot of other great folks in there too, Kathy Pickens, David Joy, and many more. Um, all the authors who were fe- featured on the podcast prior to January 31st, 2023, appear in one or more of the eight books. Yeah, and each book also comes with a forward by... Uh, Sarah or Hannah. Thank you, Sarah and Hannah, for those. And uh, also a reflection by me, because uh, why not? I mean, you know, after after four and a half years, uh, I need to reflect <laughs> on something. So I decided I'd reflect on the quotes in, in each book, and uh, and I did that. Uh, it's really what I learned uh, that helped me write, publish, and market uh, my first full-length novel, Daily Decorations, and I wanted to share this advice with others. Yeah, and if you're interested in pre-ordering, all of the ebooks in the series are up now for pre-order. We'll be sharing links for those so you can find them easily. They're up at your favorite online vendors. And then we're also going to be making print books in the future, so look out for that too. And get this, the first ebook will be free. That is not a glitch. You heard me. I said free. We all love free things, so you don't have any excuse to not order it online. And when you do, please write a review so we can help spread the word. Yeah, I love that uh, free uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's really not hard to sell free stuff, folks. Uh, no, you know, and, uh, <laughs> it's the easiest way to do it. <laughs> yeah. And so the books are up for pre-order now, but each month starting in March, we're going to have a segment on the show here where we talk about the book of the month and we'll tell you what the topic of the book is and share some of our favorite quotes for it. So look out for that. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah. And you can expect more details about this series in our newsletter, which you can sign up for at the podcast website at any point. Yeah. Okay. So we found uh you know, all these writers um, were really, I mean, inspirational to us. Uh, and that's why we went back and did this and put this together. It's been about a seven to eight to nine month project, but uh, it's coming together. We're looking forward to it and uh, hope you will uh, enjoy uh, free book one on the writing life and uh, that you will, uh, you know, by doing this, by the way, you're going to help support the podcast and you're going to learn from our many talented author guests by, by getting the book. 
We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, here we are in Act 1, uh, interview portion of our uh, show today. Uh, we've got uh, an author, W author, Alex Kenna. Uh, her book is What Meets the Eye. Hannah did this interview. Hannah, tell us. About yeah, Alex is that. awesome. We had a great time talking. She's out located in the California area, which is where her book takes place um, before she is a lawyer, writer, and amateur painter. She says that she used to paint a lot on Sundays before she had her now toddler. Kind of cuts into the time, which I'm starting to understand a little bit more <laughs> about these days. Um, before law school, she studied painting and art history at Penn, and she also worked as a freelance art critic and culture writer and sold art in a gallery. Um, she's originally from Washington, D.C., and now lives in L.A. and California with her husband, son, and giant snout schnauzer zelda which i love that name for a dog <laughs> uh when she's not writing she can be found nerding out in art museums exploring flea markets playing string instruments badly to amuse her her toddler yeah sarah tell us uh give us the sort of quick synopsis about the book and some of the praises out there yeah, so What Meets the Eye is the first in the Kate Miles Private Detective series, and it combines the author's interest in oil painting, art forgery, and murder. Um, it's gotten some great praise. Kirkus Reviews called it a righteous, painful debut, and they said, more, please. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Always good to hear. Book page said, vivid portraits and the absorbing mystery that surrounds them signal a master in the making. All right, well, uh, let's uh, listen to Hannah's interview with Alex. Hey, Alex, thanks for joining us today on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I know. I'm so excited to talk to you. I really am like so into thrillers and I was super excited to kind of hop on with this um, book. And I have so many questions to ask you. I feel like just I, I feel like as I was going through it, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so crazy. It's really fast paced, which is something I love about, you know, mystery writing. And you did such a great job with that. And so I know this takes place in L.A. And is that where you are in that general area? Yeah. OK, awesome. Did you, were you how did you know you wanted to set the story there? I think for the, the 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 way the story progressed, it was it took place in the art world. Um, my victim is kind of a an art superstar, and her gallery owner is um, you know kind of a huge gallery. And so I think it really kind of had to be in New York and L.A. Yeah, and L.A. it's just where I live. I don't at this point I just haven't spent enough time in New York to I think credibly set something there. So L.A. I could kind of go visit places if I wanted to set something and. You know, we my, dragged my poor husband. We went on little weekend field trips to check out different galleries and, you know, that kind of thing. So L.A. was just kind of the logical choice. Yeah, no, and I loved it, too. I feel like it was and a big part of the story is kind of this underground Los Angeles art community. And it was super like, I don't know, it, it felt very kind of creepy at times. It just like this whole under the radar community, basically. And I know it's and you know, you're a painter, right? So you're an avid Sunday painter. Is that <laughs> So when you have any free yeah. time, <laughs> um, well, I guess yeah, it, it has been a little while at this point. Is I, I have an almost two year old, so, right? And I work full time, but um, it certainly back before I had my two year old, I, I did a lot more painting. Is that kind of um, and I know so like is that kind of how you decided to have sort of the art world be part of this book? Is just through that hobby for yourself? Yeah, I wanted to write about something where I, I had enough of a connection where I felt I could write about it credibly. Right. And so me, I, I work in criminal law, so mm -hmm. mystery made sense. And I, I majored in art and art history, and I briefly worked in a gallery. Okay. And so my background was in art. And then um, writing that writing a painter felt very natural to me. I mean, I, I'm not as evil as the, <laughs> as the one in this book. Um, <laughs> but um, I should, I should cl cl clarify that. But um, just having made paintings for a long time, having you know thought about artists and thought about contemporary art, it it, right. it was an area that felt very natural to write. Right, and it was. I feel like um, you know when you mentioned that the character in the book is evil, but even so, Margot. So we have two female protagonists, right? So there's Margot and there's Kate, um, two very different people that have totally different kind of um, backgrounds and just in general. They, but they, I feel like you can kind of relate to both of them in different ways. Um, can you talk a little bit just about how you mapped out those characters and which one you kind of relate more to? And I'm sure it won't be the more evil one, but just sort of how you decided which character traits you wanted them to have. Yeah, 
I think also for Kate, she's my detective and she mm-hmm. basically her backstory is she used to be LAPD. Uh, she has a she used to be married. She has a seven year old. And then she had a, a pretty terrible worksite accident, ended up getting addicted to painkillers, lost her job. Uh, and at this at where the book picks up, she's got partial custody of her kid, mm-hmm. but is only seeing her every other weekend. And for her, I was I was really interested in writing somebody who had gone through something that really changes how they see themselves in the world, who's, who feels like part of their identity has been stripped away. And um, so I was also kind of interested in, I had this um, really annoying former coworker who used to say something about how like, you have to love yourself to love other people or it's oh kind of like an old cliche. <laughs> and and then, like, I kind of thought, well, what if, what if you actually hate yourself, but you're actually a good person and you know, you love other people. You're just, you're at a point where something's happened and you have to kind of start rebuilding. Yeah. So that's kind of where I was coming from with Kate. I wanted somebody who's kind of has to, has to rebuild themselves and, and at a later point in life than most people, like in your late thirties, you're not usually really excited about um, that kind of type of self, self exploration. Mm-hmm. She's more trying to create a new normal. Um, and I wanted to also to have her, like, as you mentioned, the characters are very different. So she's kind of a contrast to Margot. And Margot, I shouldn't say she's evil. Um, she has a she has a sadistic streak for yeah. sure. But I think she also has a strong sense of of justice um, and right and wrong, even if she doesn't always follow. Right. It. But she is um, she's a brilliant painter. And that was kind of fun for me to write because like I had studied art and art in college and like, you know, it gave me a chance to kind of think about what her projects would do. Um, think about how she would be thinking about art, who she would be looking at. Um, and then uh, it was a little bit of um, almost fantasy for me. Cause I could imagine, you know, if I were more talented, what project, what projects would I be working on? And I, you know, I gave her incredible draftsmanship skills. And so for her, I, I also, I, she is, bipolar and wanted to have her to be a non-neurotypical character in part mm-hmm. because um, I think that's really common in art in the art world especially for people who are tremendously talented and uh, I wanted to but I also wanted to make sure that that she had a voice I didn't want that to kind of be like a cheap plot right. device so she made sure that I kind of went back and and did a lot of chapters from her perspective to make sure that she was kind of a fully fleshed out person and you know, for her, I wanted to also, with you know, in contrast with Kate, Kate has a lot of self-doubt about everything. Mm-hmm. Margot is kind of brash and bold and, and super confident, although there's also a layer of self-hatred underneath that. So that was that was definitely fun. I, I was kind of thinking about them both as individuals, but I was also thinking about them, um, how, how they'd work together so that they would be, you know, be very different perspectives. Yeah, and they kind of complement each other in a strange way, I guess, too. You know, they sort of hold hands throughout the book. Um, and I really like books that have different perspectives from the different characters. And so how do you, how did you kind of, um, do you storyboard when you write or do you kind of flesh things out on like a whiteboard or how do you do that when it comes down to, you know, I mean, because I know it's tough to write from different perspectives and there's kind of different timelines in this book and everything too. So how did you kind of keep that organized? In your brain. I wish I could say that I did something to keep it organized, <laughs> but it was uh, it's pretty it was pretty free flowing. I think um, the closest I I come to outlining I think mm-hmm. is just basically scribbling down thoughts. Right. And so I have I have terrible serial killer handwriting, but it <laughs> it helps me. Like, it's bad. My husband like if I've, I've been sending out like you know books to people yeah. to review sometimes a letter and my husband is like I'm gonna sign it for you because oh if God. they see your handwriting they're gonna think you're crazy <laughs> and he's not he's a really nice person he's not being patronizing oh my God. No. <laughs> uh, but you know I, I'll like you know scribble on a notebook a lot and I, I'll you know all of a sudden I filled up half the notebook and sometimes I can't read it later but just that kind of process gets my my brain my brain going so I did a lot of that kind of sort of planning out in like a disorganized way in my head um but in the, I, I sort of came up with the idea for the characters as I was going. Um, although Kate changed a lot, she yeah. started out as a male police officer. So when I when I was first writing the book, and okay. then I I kind of thought that I wanted to take her in a different direction. Um, and so she she changed a lot as I went back into different different drafts of the book. Okay, how long did it take you to write this? I think I didn't. It didn't take me that long to write it. It was partly just. Um, I was writing it during the pandemic okay. and I also like I had a gestational diabetes and so like I was pretty high risk and I really didn't go out much. Okay. And so I, I needed something to keep my brain going because mm-hmm. you're, 
you're yeah <laughs> you get bored it There's was not a crazy a lot of baby. yes <laughs> i totally get that <laughs> yeah so this was this was a little bit of my pandemic escape which is okay. nice um, but um and editing takes a lot longer i think because getting just getting the words on the page you kind of just get it out there and then the second phase, I think, is much more much more painstaking of making sure that everything hangs together and you don't have a million little plot threads that never get resolved. And that that phase, I think, probably took much longer than writing the book. Right. And I feel like something I really enjoyed about this book, too, you, you mentioned, um, you know, the plots getting resolved. And I felt like this book really kind of came to a good and realistic ending point. Um, something that I really enjoy with, especially reading mysteries and thrillers, sometimes I feel like writers can get carried away with just making it like super crazy and like, da da da, what's the biggest twist? Which I love a good twist. Um, and, but I also really like when a book ends with a realistic ending and it's not sort of just like twisted into something that never would you know, happen in real life. I felt like you did a really good job of kind of taking these characters on a journey mentally for themselves. Um, and then we did, I walked away from it feeling, you know, I was, I was happy with the ending and I felt like it, it fit really well. Um, did you go into writing the book knowing what you, how you wanted it to end or not really? I did. I okay. knew, I kind of had a sense of the beginning. And thank you. I appreciate that. Is oh, yeah. that an ending things are just definitely hard. It's hard. Yeah. Cause, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but this one, yeah, I think um, I, I kind of had an idea at the beginning and then I had the idea of the ending, but, and then the middle was more of a struggle and okay. you also, you want to, uh, you don't want things to be totally predictable either. Mm -hmm. So you have to have, but you also don't want to have, um, I guess, like kind of red herrings that are also completely obvious. I think you have, yeah. depending on where you put things in a book, if it's like, well, this is the person she suspects in chapter two. Yeah. They probably didn't. It's probably yeah, exactly. not them. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was interesting. That was that was more of a challenge trying to come up with um, different you know possibilities about who could have done it. And then there were definitely some points where I thought, well, do I do do I want to keep keep the same killer at the end? Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I ultimately ended up going in the same direction that I was planning. Okay. And so you mentioned like in the middle, there's a bunch of like, how do you want this to go? How did you decide which crimes you wanted to have kind of involved in the story? Because I would say there's what, blackmail, fraud, murder, there's a couple different ones in here. So how did you kind of decide, all right, these are the things that I want to focus on? I, well, I think part of it was I, I wanted there to be a lot of people who you could realistically think might have done it because they're terrible people. Yeah. Um, although, and then I, I, I also, and I will, you also, I also wanted to have, you know, like a danger element for the character who's the, the sleuth who's kind of investigating things as mm -hmm. she goes along or she's meeting all these shady people. And then um, for Margot, I was really interested in um, the idea of maybe kind of blurring the lines between art and crime because mm -hmm. she kind of gets herself yeah. into some trouble too. And that was partly just, I was thinking about who she would have looked at and what, what her art would, would kind of be, be like based on her personality. And I think there were a lot of artists who were either around her, her age bracket or a little bit older who were interested in kind of blurring the lines between art and life. And there's one, um, there's a French artist who I put, I put in the book as one of her influences who had this uh, really cool project where she dated this guy who was, you know, too much of a coward to break up with her in person. So he sent her mm -hmm. an email and she basically got revenge by sending the email, the I'm dumping you email to a hundred different women right. uh, who are all experts in their profession to analyze it from their perspective, like an ethicist about why he was a cad and a grammarian about, you know, his typos <laughs> and, um, you know, a Talmudic scholar, I think was in there. So I wanted to kind of take I was interested in the idea of kind of taking that one step further and adding an illegal element and then kind of working that into the plot. Okay. So that was kind of how some of the, how some of the crimes ended up in the book. Yeah. Did you do you did you do a whole lot of research into kind of just how a lot of that like these styles of crimes would flesh out or I know you mentioned that you're a prosecutor was that did that kind of play a role in you sort of understanding the back end of some of these crimes? I don't know if how I think it, it did in some in some sense. Um, it none of none of the crimes are related to anything I did. Yeah, it, work wise. But um, I think I think more that being a prosecutor I think helped in terms of having some basic understanding of law enforcement. Okay. I think it helped in terms of 
of writing Kate and having a sense of of what she would look at in terms of going about trying to do an investigation because she was a police officer for a long time. But I did a lot of research in ter- in uh, in terms of white collar crimes. Okay. Uh, for for some certain, I don't want to give anything away about the book. Yeah. But I kind of ended up going down the rabbit hole, which was a lovely thing about writing this during the pandemic right. time. I was like <laughs> reading the Panama Papers yeah. and you know, going, yeah, going going down all kinds of crazy directions. But you know, looking up the bank secrecy laws and yeah, um, yeah, I get pretty nerdy by the time I was oh by my the gosh, time I, I was done with it. So. <laughs> well, worked in your favor. I feel like I feel like it. See, as I was reading this, it felt very like authentic to what exact like what actually would have happened in any of these circumstances. Um, I think that's really interesting. So you mentioned reading the Panama newspaper. No, that's just the, the Panama Papers. It was this, oh, there was a oh. uh, money laundering scandal. So oh. I, ended, I, I ended up researching. Um, in terms of reading about like different types of crimes and, and then, um, you know, different types of laws that might have factored into certain people's motivations. Um, so, you know, that was, I think, I guess maybe having a criminal criminal justice background was helpful in that way because I, I kind of got me thinking about what would motivate different people as in terms of committing certain crimes and also thinking about um, different ways that a person investigating something would look uh, and to try to kind of solve the crime. So kind of in an indirect way, I think that it, my background probably played into it. Okay. Well, do you want to read us a selection from the book? Um, sure. I think I, I will, um, I'll, I guess I'll read the preface, which is one of Margot's, Margot's section. Um, so I should, I should uh, mention it's a little bit salty. Most of, most of the book is less salty because most of the chapters are not from Margot's perspective, <laughs> but um she was kind of one where I, I cleaned her up a little bit, but she kind of is who she is. So mm-hmm. um, but this, yeah, this, so this section, uh, basically I, I mentioned that Margot is, um, yeah, so she, yeah, she's a little bit troubled in this section. She's been kind of on an upswing and she's been painting and making a ton of progress and then she, something changes and she sort of starts sliding downward and she starts feeling terrible. And then at the end of it, she gets a knock on the door from someone who's, she's not expecting to see. So all week long, I felt a fire in my belly. The spirit passed through me like lightning, brushes flying from wet canvas to wet canvas. Cooking was a waste of time, so I ordered takeout and drank whiskey. Sleep was out of the question. I cranked up the music and worked to the beat. Sometimes I sang along, dripping globs of color onto the floor. The paint went on smooth like buttery icing. After a while, my brushes stayed in their jar and my fingers danced across the canvas. No bristles between skin and cloth. Soon the images came alive. I'd been studying the Spanish greats, Velazquez, Goya, Zerberan, Ribera. For them, it was all about bottomless darks with hints of warm, mellow light. I took a break from bold colors, indulging in white and yellow ochre on burnt sienna. The effect was sinister but mesmerizing. My hands pulled ghostly figures, one after another, out of a dark void. I finally passed out around dawn, just as the birds were starting to chatter. When I woke, it was mid-afternoon and the magic was gone. My mouth tasted of bile, and I felt like someone had scooped out my eyeballs and punched me in the sockets. I wandered into the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror. One of Goya's haggard witches stared back at me. My skin was the color of rice pudding. There were purple half-moons under my eyes and a cadmium streak in my hair. I picked at my nail beds, which were filled with Prussian blue. The thought of cleaning them was exhausting, so I didn't bother. My stomach let out a growl, and I stumbled over to the fridge. Nothing inside was fresh enough to tempt me. I turned to a soggy takeout container on the kitchen counter. The waxed cardboard had partially melted and a puddle of sauce oozed onto the table. A dead fruit fly was trapped inside the congealed orange liquid like a mosquito in amber. I pulled a half-eaten egg roll off last night's dinner plate and popped it in my mouth. At least it was still crispy. After breakfast, lunch, dinner, I had an edible and downed a pot of coffee. I tried to get back to work, but the electricity was gone. The images that had been so alive last night now looked dull and mannered. A self-portrait smirked at me. I'd given myself a pouty red mouth like an Instagram twat, an artificial Jolly Rancher green eyes. It was pathetic. The last desperate cry of a lonely train wreck nearing 40. I felt worthless. I should go jump off a bridge or wander onto the freeway. I lay on the couch for what must have been hours, binge-watching some show about British aristocrats and their servants. Thank God I wasn't born in 19th century England. You can't be a British lady if you're a mouthy alcoholic who screws half the land of gentry. I would have done worse as a servant. I can barely fry an egg, and half the time I'm too paralyzed by my own shit to get out of bed. I'd end up a consumptive whore blowing sailors for my supper in a London tenement. 
Curtains were drawn and eventually lights stopped leaking in from the window edges. I usually do better when the sun goes down, but nightfall didn't bring me a second wind. It made me feel worse. I poured myself another drink and lit a cigarette. My cell kept blowing up with a number I didn't recognize. I'd had this phone for six months and never transferred my contacts over from the last one. Now my caller ID served as a kind of litmus test. If someone hadn't reached out in half a year, they weren't worth my time. I let it go to voicemail and turned back to the aristocrats. The only decent one was dead now. This show was making me tired. There was a knock on the door, probably the neighbor coming to tell me her baby couldn't sleep because I make use of my electronics. I ignored it, took a swig of whiskey, and lit another cigarette. Then whoever it was started pounding. Margo, open up, said a loud tenor. The voice was familiar, but I couldn't place it. His tone had an edge of desperation. Could it be that cop from last week? A wave of dread flowed through me. My hands started shaking and a clump of ash fell on the couch. If I kept very still, maybe he'd think I wasn't home and go away. No, the TV was too loud. He knew I was in here. I tiptoed over to the keyhole and gasped. My drink flew from my hand and shattered, coating the floor in alcohol and shards of glass. Oh, I'm glad that you read that because for me, Margot was like, I loved reading her parts just because she was kind of like a very... Um, I don't know even what do you, what would you say the best word to describe her is if you had to pick one she's salty yeah she's definitely My, uh, salty but she's also just super she's like a charismatic I don't know her I, I I was very um drawn to her character did you have fun writing her character I had a lot of fun writing her character I, so I had a couple good friends of mine read the book and they were like oh we hear you we read Mario and, and we think of you <laughs> I, which I didn't love. Which I don't know how to take that, thing. but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess I have a dark sense of humor, so maybe yeah. that's, maybe that's where we're coming okay. from. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that was one. Of, I mean, that was I think was one of the fun fun things to write about her. I think um, when you have a character who's not who who's it doesn't take up the whole book, yeah. you can kind of push them in certain directions, but you don't want people to get tired of somebody because otherwise it's like okay, you know. She's ranting again if it's like, you know, the 20th chapter. But I think for I tried to put in just enough of her that I could kind of use her as punctuation and also, you know, also show her as a kind of a whole person. Yeah. And I think something that's really special about that, too, is for a character that isn't in it super often, um, she has so many layers to her. So I think that's a really interesting thing that you were able to do is to kind of take a character that you don't see from page to page, just like the inside of her brain, but she still has all of these different layers to her. And um, you, I mean, I left reading the book, still thinking about her. Um, and I loved Kate too. You know, Kate's probably the one that readers will, you know, see more of themselves in because she's, you know, in it the whole time. She has all of these different issues with um, like her ex-husband and just not really feeling like you said, it's like she, part of her identity was stripped from her. And I think that's something we all kind of struggle with in life. Um, and Margot is a little bit more, you know, she's entertaining, but she's also like insane in a, in a lot of ways. And you're like, I don't know if I've ever been quite like that. But um, it's it was just kind of interesting that you were able to do that within with not too many pages focusing on her. And just with the book's title, What Meets the Eye, I feel like it kind of relates directly to her like what actually was happening in her life under the radar um is that kind of what you were thinking when you decided on the title of the book or what what kind of inspired that yeah I think um and and honestly I struggled a lot with the title yeah. the title for this book um in part just because honestly there's so many books in the world like yeah. every title is taken like even like there are other books with this title it's just you know i'm like oh really? i have a great title and then you, you you google it and like there's already just an art kidding. history with that so, <laughs> yeah. board. Um, so there were definitely some practical considerations with that but um i think yeah i think i was thinking both um you know margot's character mm-hmm. she on the surface she's you know she's beautiful she's glamorous and she's successful but she's has a lot of demons and then also um i guess in a more literal sense um art forgery is a big topic in the book and so yeah there's you know what you see in the canvas and then there's a lot going on beneath the surface uh so it kind of it kind of factored in in a couple different ways okay and so the art forgery part was really interesting to me too. And it had me thinking, I'm like, I need to research more about just like how I'm sure that happens all the time in the art world, right? Is that something that you encountered too? Cause you said you worked in a gallery. Did you see a lot of like 
forged pieces or I mean how did that how did you kind of learn about that it didn't the, I don't think that was an issue in the gallery I worked in I I only worked in the gallery for a few months I started okay. there um right when the great recession hit so I in some ways it was an education because I you know I had one month where I was like 23 and I made all this money and I thought this was wonderful and then the, the next month the economy cratered and yep. I made nothing <laughs> uh, and then you start seeing people's dark sides uh, right. pretty quickly and out of there um but i think um yeah i kind of got the idea just from um you know like probably literally everyone i binged a lot of tv during the pandemic Mm -hmm. um and but you know by the time we had basically exhausted all of television yeah um, my husband and i started binging on this nerdy british show called faker fortune okay um where it's basically a journalist and um a art art dealer and they work to fi- they somebody thinks they have like a matisse in the attic and they work to figure out if it's real um and we got pretty interested in that where um and they would go through all these processes of like forensic to figure out okay well could this have been made in the 1600s or not yeah um and uh, you know, tracing back the provenance so we were think i was kind of thinking about that a lot um you know and I, and um i was it kind of got me thinking um with older paintings there are all these techniques for figuring out if something's real, but for a contemporary artist, if you have somebody who's only been on the painting scene for a hot minute, you you don't have the forensics and you don't have any scholarship. You don't really have any experts about that person who can give you an opinion about whether it's real in a credible way. You know, you can't say, okay, well, this couldn't have been made in, you know, 2017 because there's, right. there's nothing really forensically differently about what people are doing. So um, if that artist, you know, was hypothetically dead, it would create an opportunity for forgery. Okay. So that's kind of where I was coming from from that. Um, I thought it might be an interesting angle to throw into a, for a crime book. It's so interesting. I feel like this conversation with you is making me want to read back through a little bit and just kind of think about, um, you know, it, it is one thing I think that's really kind of crazy with white collar crimes or just different things like that is just sort of like how there's a different, a whole different world um, other than the one that we're living in. Um, so it's just like the whole underground idea of just like, okay, we're normal people walking around day to day. And then there's this whole other situation happening where it's like, oh, we're going to make like people forging other people's artwork and, you know, like blackmail is all of these different things. You're just like, oh my gosh, this is just insane. Um, I'd have one question too about just like the process of writing the book is just, uh, with the different, cause I know you kind of bounce around from different time periods. So it's just some of it's seven years ago, other times it's five years ago, then it's present day. Um, how did you do that? Like, how did you decide what the timeline should look like? I think I sort of just, I decided that I wanted Margot to be a part of it. So mm-hmm. just for that reason, I kind of had to go back and forth in time. So I wanted to kind of, and I, I felt like I wanted to kind of tell her story a little bit. And I, and also kind of, it gave, by kind of telling her story about how she came up in the art world, mm-hmm. it let me explore kind of different factors in the art world. Like, you know, there's like her, her gallerist is, you know, kind of a man ho and a total misogynist. And yeah. uh, I wanted to kind of put that into the book. Um, and um, there's another, there's another artist who is, who features in the book um, who, and he, I wanted to tell his story a little bit, which also kind of made me meant that I kind of had to go back. And I think um, for me, I also, I think also, I, I wanted to have different time periods and different perspectives because I felt like it would be a little bit more compelling to have things told either in first person mm-hmm. or just by somebody who experienced it, as opposed to having every chapter be the sleuth does an interview, right? And. I think, I mean, I've read books where people do that brilliantly and you're engaged the whole time. But I think for me, I, I found it a little bit more interesting to write. And I felt like um, just the way I write, um, I thought it would be a little bit more powerful if I had, if the reader was gaining some information directly from the source, as opposed to just through Kate finding things out. And that was, I think, structurally a little bit of a challenge because I wanted to show the reader, I wanted the reader to see what happened directly, but I also had to kind of show Kate how Kate figured it out because otherwise it wouldn't yeah. really make sense when when she came to a conclusion but I also didn't want to be too repetitive so that was a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to balance those things yeah do you think that you'll write more about Kate in the future yeah well I finished the rough draft of the sequel oh my um, gosh so, that's so cool yeah I'm I'm pretty excited about it I, you know I haven't sold it yet but I'm 
you know, I'm hoping I'll be able to bring it out into the world because yeah. I think it's an interesting one. Um, so yeah, it's a very very different book, but it's def- it's Kate and she's on a different. Um, I don't know if adventure is the right word. <laughs> Something on more a bodies. I, can say that. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you'd say yes because I did feel like at the end I'm like you know I feel like you could do a series about her just in her life because there were some different um, storylines I think that could definitely like you could see how it could keep moving forward. So I was hoping that you'd still be working from her perspective. I love that. Yeah, I know. I've been I've been trying to think. I've been, I'm trying to finish book two and then I'm, I'm sort of, try- I've got a couple different ideas for book three, but, um, Woo-hoo! which are very, a couple different possible ideas for book three. So hoping to keep going with her. Oh, I so hope you do. I love that character. I mean, all of them are great. I think you did the, the character development in this book was just fantastic. And that's one of my favorite things um, when I'm reading, I just really want to connect with the characters and their journeys. I think Kate was just, I mean, you know, she deals with addiction. She deals with kind of a jerk ex-husband and being a parent and being a working parent, you know, just all these different things that you can kind of, um, I think a reader could see themselves in. And so I'm excited to hear that you're kind of keep keeping forward with her. She's a really good character. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I think that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us, Alex. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. This is great. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, we're in uh, our Act 2, the writing topics for today. We've got uh, Charlotte Litt, two-minute tip. We've also got an audio blog post uh, starting first with a tip. This one's by Kathy Collins. Uh, the title of the tip is Symbols in Writing. Uh, we're going to listen in, and then we'll talk about it. Hi, I'm Charlotte Litt, co-founder Kathy Collins, with today's Charlotte Litt two-minute tip, which admittedly is about a three-minute tip. Let's talk some about symbols and how they can find their way into our stories and poems. Notice that language, find their way. We can't intentionally incorporate symbols into our work because symbols aren't devices that adhere to any particular craft rules. Rather, they are mysterious energies that undergird the psychological and emotional underbelly of a piece. You can welcome and warmly host symbols when they appear, but you can't force them into a structure. We can directly use a sign as a way of making one thing stand for another, another something that we already know or understand. Likewise, we can employ a metaphor to compare one thing to another. Both fall under the umbrella of symbolic speech, and both can help us apprehend the presence of a symbol, but they aren't symbols themselves. That's because, at least from the perspective of Jungian psychology, symbols are elusive. They aren't things at all, but are the best way we have to apprehend life patterns which are never fully knowable. A single symbol holds a multitude of possible meanings, including paradoxes. So you can't use one symbol to stand for another single entity. In a sense, symbols are what enables us to hold the paradox inherent in all universal experiences. Further, Jung believed that symbols are the natural language of the unconscious, Because they go beyond the intellect, symbols allow us to engage other ways of knowing, allow us to perceive life's hidden relationships. Jung argued symbols aren't so much things as they are experiences that help us see and feel a deep sense of connection to life. Unlike signs, symbols aren't shortcuts. When they appear in our writing, they provide us a means of circumambulating a subject, looking at it from multiple points of view. Rather than drawing us closer or allowing us to clarify a subject, a symbol will tend to expand, amplify, and complicate a situation. A symbol will press on us to enlarge and deepen our perception of reality. Keep in mind that we don't usually choose our symbols. Rather, they choose us. Our job is to be open to their presence and incorporate the mystery they bring into our writing and into our lives. In a recent Charlotte Lit class, we read the wonderful poem, Braiding His Hair, by Alison Luderman. 
In this piece, which you can find online, Luderman beautifully demonstrates the art of hosting powerful symbols through the telling of a simple concrete story. She doesn't need to hit us over the head by naming those symbols because they are inherent in the event itself, or to be more precise, present in the way she perceives that event. Reread some of your own work and notice the way universal symbols radiate from within your best pieces. If you're like most writers, the same symbols and themes emerge again and again, whether you're aware of them. This is a good thing. Think of these symbols as autonomous energies that want expression through you. When they knock on your door, just invite them in. All right. Um, well, uh, Kathy's making a th thank to me. Yeah. yeah with, uh, <laughs> with, with this uh, with uh, a little young philosophy and uh, a little bit of spiritedness to the writing process, which is yeah. good. We should we should have our brain stretched, uh, you know, every now and then. Um, but uh, yeah. So as I'm listening to her. You know, one thing that pops into my mind, which apparently it's not, because she says symbols are not things. It's not a MacGuffin, right? It's not that device uh, in that mystery that sits over in the corner that they uh, that you see in the opening scene, and that in the last scene has blood on it. You know, mm -hmm. because yeah. it's been there the whole time. So it's not that. It's something. I guess it stands for something else. Sarah, you want to jump in on this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much interesting stuff in there, um, and symbols are really fascinating to me because I think that they just show how we are constantly searching for meaning and we're so attuned to that when you read and even in life in general i mean we look up at the sky and instead of just seeing stars we see constellations and we we think okay these are images that fit together in certain ways and there are people and there are animals and there are stories behind them like we just naturally as humans that's how our brains work as we look for meaning and things um so i think that there's a lot you can do as a writer to really use that to your advantage and, and let that meaning come through. And like Kathy was saying, you probably don't want to intentionally set out to say like, this is a symbol, like this tree mm -hmm. symbolizes <laughs> death or, you know, Dang. something like that. Death tree. Especially <laughs> the death tree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. even when you're writing the first draft, especially, I think it's usually best to just get the story out there. And then sometimes you look back at it and you're like, Oh, this kind of reminds me of this. And you start to see those connections in your own work. Um, so a lot of times for the writer, it's not even conscious. And certainly for the, the reader, they may not consciously recognize certain symbols or where they're getting elements of meaning from, but it still is there and it still kind of wells to the surface. And I think that there's a lot of power in tapping into your reader's subconscious and allowing them to put meaning together in ways that are not necessarily explicit, but that still hit them on kind of a deeper psychological, emotional level. Um, and symbols can really allow you to, to tap into that. Yeah, well, I've been threatening uh, my daughter and her wife that I'm going to get Simon a set of drums with symbols, but uh, not the same kind of symbols we're talking about here. A <laughs> little <you know>? different. <laughs> Slightly different. Yeah. The kind that make noise, yeah. Although I suppose symbols in literature can make yeah. noise too. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, Sarah, yeah. doesn't surprise me to hear you say that you're really fascinated by symbolism because I feel like as a screenwriter and just in like film, is there's so much symbolism mm -hmm. in film, right? So it's like, I was actually just over the weekend watching Triangle of Sadness. I don't know if you guys have heard of that or seen it but no i've been wanting to see it you'd like it it's weird it's great really good um right up my alley <laughs> exactly i think you would love it um but it, there's a ton of so symbolism in that movie and I, I feel like i'm one of those people that's just like i'm always kind of searching for that meaning like you're saying especially in what i read and what i watch and i'm like a notorious like reddit er <laughs> i'm always on reddit after i do anything and i'm like what did this mean um so i mean <laughs> i love i love this tip. i feel like we could do a whole episode on symbolism just because i feel like and when you're reading something where you're like that's what that means. This is a, a mirror of society today. This is that villain is capitalism, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's just like a ton of uh, symbolism out there. And I love that she said too, you can't like, it's, it's kind of like Elizabeth Gilbert's idea in big magic where it's like, you can't really set out to get that creativity it has to visit you. So I have a feeling what happens a lot of times uh, when novelists write or, you know, screenwriters write or anything like that, you're sort of just like, Oh, you write it all out and you th that's that is what that meant that is kind of where i was going with this story it just kind of comes to you um but yeah i mean i i, I love that i think I, I could talk about i feel like the whole reason i got into reading in the first place i remember in eighth grade i told my uh, lit teacher i was just like this has great symbolism about like the great gatsby <laughs> <laughs> and she was like <laughs> Good job. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> a plus, yeah. A plus. Was a good student. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, yeah, and I, I think this is a, an interesting uh, tip because, um, y- you know, symbols definitely do enrich the, the story. The question is, um, how do they get in the story? And, you know, I think we had one writer who's in our Write Quote series, uh, Paolo Bacigalupe, who wrote um, a, a book about uh, the, the water shortages in the Southwest. It's a novel. It's a thriller. But uh, there's a lot of symbolism in it uh, and a lot of truths about what could happen to our world in the future. But he said he doesn't go out to write anything that has that kind of symbolism in it. Uh, but he does try to find it and inject it into the worlds that he builds so that it sort of comes about naturally. And I think someone else on the podcast said they don't set out you know, to be preachy uh, in their novels because uh, if you do, you come across uh, almost like a preacher and people don't like to be preached at. So it's kind of kind of maybe it's what Stephen King says, which is you write it uh, and you write it again and then you look at it. And when you look at it, look for those underlying themes and symbols and things that maybe you didn't notice yeah. uh, on the first pass or two. Yeah, yeah and it's fun to do that because then you, you see them there and you're like, oh, I did yeah. that all along. And you convince yourself that it was right. intentional. Yeah. And if your brain put it together for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm so wise. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's uh, hear how you can get on the podcast and then we're going to come back with the uh, audio blog. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right. uh, Looking forward to this one here. Um, Flying and writing without discipline, expect a crash landing. This is by Robert uh, Young. Sarah, tell us about Robert. Sure. So Robert grew up in Rockville Center, New York. Um, He went to Brown University. Then he got his law degree at George Washington University. He continues to practice law in LA, where he lives on the West Side, pursuing his entrepreneurial dreams, flying his beloved 2-9er Lima, passionately celebrating life with his friends, and writing about the next adventures of Captain Bob. Captain Bob. I like it. I like it. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, Hannah, tell us about, uh, his memoir, Vagabond. Yeah, so this is about him jumping into the left seat of his beloved two niner Lima, which I feel like I'm going to have to look up what that looks like so I can get a good image in my brain (laughs) and going across the country. He thought he knew visiting old friends, making new ones and searching for meaning in a time of unprecedented personal and national crisis. Um, while fulfilling his lifetime dream, Bob ultimately discovers the truth about himself and the country he loves. Sounds good. Yeah, I love that idea. I love that idea. I mean, I, I go to a trout stream to try to figure things out. He gets in a <laughs> little little plane and flies across. across one way the to country. do it. Uh, yeah. That's one, one way to do it, exactly. So uh, well, let's listen to uh, this uh, post. Flying and writing without discipline, expect a crash landing by Robert Young. When I decided to fly across America and record my journey in Vagabond Pilot, a journey of discovery and renewal, I knew that I would need all the discipline my piloting skills had honed into me. But I had no idea that the same discipline for occupying the left seat in the cockpit would be the same needed to present my journey to readers in the written word. I wrote Vagabond Pilot, the story of my travels across America, to soothe the angst of the painful dilemma I found myself in after I lost my way. I had lost my home and La Dolce Vita after family business runes brought on by my older brother brought me down also. Flying my plane and writing about my trip was a therapeutic exercise on my way to seek solace through my passion of flying hoping to rediscover and renew myself after so many difficulties had befallen me. 
Flying an aircraft is never to be taken lightly. It takes years of skills and experiences learned and always requires a professional regimen when engaged in any of the multiple phases of a flight. Writing about the trip was the very same. With each flying leg, I had to approach the day's flights with meticulous care and planning. After selecting a route to my destination, I had to review weather maps and forecasts, check the impact of any forecast upon my route of flight. I would then plan the flight accordingly, enter my flight plan into my iPad and the wondrous ForeFly application. Now that was just the night before. The next day, another call was made to flight service to verify my own review of the weather and filing of my flight plan. Before boarding my aircraft, before engines start, I would do the reverent walk around that every pilot does. Get settled aboard, hook up all the electronic devices, start the engine, taxi out, check out the plane and its engine parameters in a run-up, then off we would go after clearance by the tower. Everything in its sequence and time, reading it all off on the checklist and the routine to which I religiously adhered. And so it was, when after each leg and spending some time at my destination, I would bring that same discipline to my writing. I wrote as I went to get a more accurate accounting of my trip rather than later trying vainly to recall those feelings months later from scribbled notes. That strict discipline of doing so within 24 hours of arrival at a new locale would enable me to relive the flight and my many encounters with my fellow Americans far more freshly than I could have ever done had I not kept at my writing. I kept my story defined. Besides sharing my personal feelings in this therapeutic exercise turning into a book, as I had set specific goals of telling the story, the flying and my friends. It was important for me to share the passion of flying, explaining all that a pilot does and encounters mastering his world. But as all, it was also just as important to share the nourishment this vagabond who had lost his way received from those friends he chose to visit to seek their love and support. Each chapter was thusly set up with the leg and friends, where I was able to make the trip not only about the passion and art of flying, but about the writer and so many of us. And just as a good pilot goes through the la a post-landing check, so I did so with many edits and re-edits of Vagabond Pilot. It was arduous, but I applied the same strict discipline, defining my story as I wrote, to now bring that professionalism and write stuff working with my publisher's editor. I responded to a different air traffic control's commands as she barked and urged and edited along with me so that we could bring our book to press. Mission accomplished. It reminded me of being on an instrument flight when following the assigned routings and rules of the road, all the while having your hand held by air traffic control would get you to your destination safely. It's all about bringing that discipline and focus to whatever the task may be at hand. Yeah, I love how um, a topic we discussed before is brought yeah. out in a, mm -hmm. in a different way. I was thinking right? the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> using, using this idea of flying. But, we, we, you know, again, synergy here, but we were talking about symbols earlier. What do you think the plane symbolizes for, for Captain Bob? <laughs> well, I think the flying represents the writing yeah. process, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure what yeah. the plane would be. Maybe the, yeah, the pit. Yeah. yeah, I think the pit. Maybe, okay, yeah. <laughs> Computer, yeah. <laughs> Your Apple Pro. Yeah, desk chair or something like that. Uh, desk, desk book, uh, yeah. Uh, but no, this is good stuff. Let's, let's jump in because there are a lot of parallels here between what he talked about and, uh, and uh, you know, this whole process of writing and editing and getting something into the world. Uh, Hannah, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this. And I, I was thinking, like, the same kind of thing. As soon as he started, I'm like, oh, okay, so symbolism. Here we go. <laughs> this is, like, the perfect mm -hmm. thing. And I love the way he describes the editor as well, just, like, barking along, like, helping. Him. But it helps <laughs> you, you know, stick the landing, I guess. And it's um, – I, I really like the way he talks about his writing in this. And 
um, calling it kind of a therapeutic act too, which I think, you know, when you're, especially when you're writing memoir and that sort of thing, it's, it's sort of like if you have the abil- ability to be as honest and authentic as possible while you're writing that style, um, I think that's really amazing. And just kind of what it, ta- like the discipline it takes to actually get a book out into the world, like working with the editor, having the support of your friends, um, you know, both within the writing world and without of the outside of the writing world um, is really important as you kind of take your work across the finish line. And I feel like the whole journey on the plane itself, you're just, it's like you, he's, he's basically saying like you start out on the ground with your writing and while you're on the plane, you're in, go up in the air, get, get everything good to go, (laughs) have all your people, your team up there with you. Then you stick the landing with their support. I mean, it's a total full circle thing. And I think he did a really great job of kind of explaining that. Yeah, I, I wonder though. Uh, just like in in the writing life, we heard in, in book one of the right quotes about uh, different opinions about the writing life. How sometimes it it might be a a clear and sunny day, yeah. you know, when you're writing, and other times it's thundering and lightning and mm-hmm. snowing and the blizzard Hurricane. and it's airplane five, you know, <laughs> you know uh, the movie and the <laughs> airport's backed up, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, Sarah, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think it is like a a great extended metaphor for the writing experience and process. Um, I think it's interesting that he mentions writing as being therapeutic for him and also the the process of flying and, you know, taking those long cross-country flights um, as being sort of a space for him to work through his thoughts. Because I feel like that's something that we've talked about with other writers on the show and even in some of the quotes in the Write Quote series is like finding your meditative activities that allow your brain to work and allow you to just have some kind of quiet time to yourself. And sometimes that's a good way to get inspiration or to work through ideas that you're working on. Um, I would not have thought of flying as being an activity that could work that way, but it sounds like it it does that for him, which is awesome. Um, yeah. And I also just love everything he's saying about discipline and planning. I mean, I'm, as I think we've discussed before, like I'm definitely a plotter. I'm an outliner. <laughs> I like to plan before I write. Um, and, you know, there are different schools of thought about that. And some people are able to just jump into the story and kind of find it as they go, which I really admire, but I, I struggle to do that. <laughs> so I could relate for sure to what he was saying about like you start planning the night before and you have to know exactly where you're going and get your coordinates and make sure the plane is safe and all of that. Like if you just jump into the plane and kind of figure it out along the way, you might have some issues. So I think it's the same way oftentimes with writing a story. It's, it's figuring out in advance where you're trying to go and how you're going to get there. And then you'll probably have a much smoother journey. So what you're saying, if I'm interpreting you correctly, is that all of our listeners out there who are pantsers better not be flying planes, right? <laughs> well, if they fly planes, maybe just take a slightly more organized yeah, approach. They, to I'm deaf a pantser. I, you don't want me well, flying a plane. They can't, they can't just jump in and go. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like you got to, as you said, you got to you got to choose the route and check check whether Make sure what's you have going enough on there. gas and all that. Yeah. Exactly. Um I really like the uh, reference to the air traffic controller because oftentimes, uh, you know, I imagine pilots sometimes want to argue with their air traffic controllers, but they still listen to them, right? Because mm-hmm. if they don't, uh, they're going to have a, a, a bad ending. Um, but, yeah, I can hear uh, I can hear them coming in now for landing. At uh, 129, you got to turn left at uh, – you need to take that out of chapter four there, and uh, <laughs> you don't need to be running on sentences there. All right, turn turn one nine or turn left here at, uh, <laughs> you know, and then you got to get it down. You got to make it work, as Hannah said. Stick the landing. So, Captain Bob, this is great. We really appreciate this. Uh, gave us a new way to look at uh, the whole idea of outlining and putting a story into the world. And uh, all the best to you with your flying and uh, and keep it up. So, um, hey, we're about to go into our book recommendations uh, right after this. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, uh, we're in Act 3 now, and we've got uh, our book recommendations. Uh, Sarah, what you got this week? 
So right now I'm reading or listening to on Libro.fm um, Age of Vice by Deepti Kapoor, which is really, really good. I'm definitely enjoying it. But I think Hannah might have recommended this on a previous episode or we talked about it with someone. So I'm actually going to recommend a forthcoming book um, that I'm also looking forward to called Games and Rituals, which is a new short story collection from Katherine Heine. I think it's coming out in April. Um, previously, I read her collection called Single Carefree Mellow, and I just really fell in love with her writing. She's very, very smart and incisive and observant, um, but also very readable. She writes mostly kind of contemporary stories about ordinary women and everyday themes, but she's a really great observer of character, I think. And there's some humor and wit woven into her writing, um, a lot of irony. So I think that this is going to be a really, really good collection, uh, Games and Rituals. I'm definitely going to give that one a shot. That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah well, first, so Age of Vice is good. I haven't I've been yeah, able to start yeah. it just yet. I'm about halfway through. Really? Yeah, I've, I've really heard it's mm-hmm. like a super quick, like you just go through it really fast because it's so, you know. Yeah, well, I'm I'm listening to it, so I basically go through it as fast as I have time yeah. to <laughs> whenever I have time to listen to an audiobook. But yeah, it's definitely worth Ooh, it. I'm excited to get started. Um, yeah, so I'm going to recommend another one that I haven't started yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, whenever I was at Buxton Books, our local bookstore here in Charleston uh, last week, they gave me a few titles. And this was another one that they recommended called Other Birds by Sarah Addison Allen. Um, and it's set in a small town in South Carolina, coastal town. Um, I think it's fictional, pretty sure. But I kind of, I think it speaks to a lot of us here, just, you know, feels near to home. So um, it's a story about a woman who goes back home or she's from that area and her mother passes away and she kind of goes through a lot of her things and meets her neighbors and kind of uncovers some mysteries and all of their life situations and um, kind of sounds like it just connects a lot of folks different past and history, you know, stories and mysteries, all that good stuff. So I'm looking forward to diving in. That's great. Uh, all right. Well, this is um, um, this whole month I've been recommending writing books that I got as gifts. And uh, this one is uh, Your Life is Story by Tristan uh, Rayner. It's, uh, it's about uh, discovering, they say, the new autobiography and writing memoir as literature. Um, I haven't gotten into it yet, but I love some of the chapter content uh, headings. Uh, the Story Only You Can Tell, um, the Nine Essential Elements of Story Structure, and then these... Uh, how to write what you dare not say, and dealing with your dark side, which gets back to probably what Judy Goldman said in her uh, uh, one of her quotes in the Write Quote series about writing memoir, and that is you need to be twice as hard on yourself as anybody else that you write about. So uh, uh, dealing with that uh, dark side. And it's even got a section here on emotional, legal, and ethical concerns. So looking forward to reading Your Life is Story by Tristan Rayner. All right, now let's uh, hear what Mark West has to say uh, this week with his recommendation. I'm guessing it's another book from 50 years ago, but we'll see. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a book that came out 50 years ago this year, that is in 1973. And the book is... Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail by Hunter S. Thompson. This book deals with the presidential campaign of 1972 between Richard Nixon and George McGovern. Much of the book initially appeared as a series of articles that ran in Rolling Stone. Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail as one of the books that got the whole new journalism movement going. It's a book that really pushed the boundaries of journalism and as a result, changed the way we cover campaigns and other political events. It was a very innovative book for its time and I highly recommend it for anyone interested in American politics. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Mark, for that recommendation. Um, Also, the others from 50 years ago. It's nice to (laughs) look back. Not everything is something. Not everything is something that comes out. I mean, they're they're good books to read. All you know, the libraries are full of good books, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Okay, listeners. Just uh, before we wrap up here, just a quick reminder. um, You know, we didn't have uh, an elevator pitch today, and I want to let you know that uh, there is no. 
entry uh, fee or any kind of gatekeeper here. We're doing this to help uh, authors uh, who've got books coming out. Um, if you do or if a friend does, uh, tell them about this. They can go to the contact tab of our uh, website, uh, click on it and find the uh, elevator pitch uh, tab. And, hey, there's a link there. You can uh, upload your audio. It'll come directly to us. We'll put it on the podcast uh, you know, roughly 30 seconds. Uh, you don't need to speed say it, but come up with something that you would say in conversation to somebody about your book that, uh, you know, you're going to have to do this anyway, folks. Um, might as well practice it now and, and, and get it out there because people are going to ask you about your book. And if you're still talking after three minutes, watch. I'm going to tell you what happens. Their eyes will start to roll in the back <laughs> of their head. You know? They're just going to walk away from you. <laughs> They're going to leave. <laughs> That's right. They'll, they'll, they'll look at this. Excuse me. Excuse me. I've got to go here. So, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of times we, we don't think about that. You know, you spend years writing it and it's long and then somebody asks you about it and you're like, well, where do I start? Right. You know, it's like, uh, come up with something that's short. Hannah, you do this yeah. all the time. And I know with your authors, it's like, could you tell me about your book? And they're like, uh, and then five minutes later, no, we need to work <laughs> yeah. on that. Let's I, work on it's that. A, if it's like 8,000 uh, run-on sentences, I'm just like, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. End call. It's, and it's a, real, it's a real art. I'll tell you, it's hard. It's, I mean, it the first hardest thing is the synopsis that goes on the back of the book. And the next hardest thing is this 30-second conversation. Maybe I should write my next people. blog post um, about like – getting developing yeah. a short elevator pitch for your yeah. book there you go. writing you go. a summary yeah <laughs> like, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah do it i know the people listening would appreciate it i would too uh all right well look uh sarah if you could tell us what's coming next week yeah so next week we are going to feature award-winning author deborah goodrich royce and her latest release reef road which publishers weekly calls an expertly paced thrill ride and new york journal of books calls exciting page turning intelligence then we're also going to have a special feature on the first book of the right quote series which is called the writing life um, we're going to share audio versions of the foreword and the reflections and a peek by the host at some of our favorite quotes that we've pulled from the book and then we're going to have a thought-provoking charlotte two-minute tip elevator pitches and our book recommendations all right, well, Hannah, take us out of here. Read on, ride on, and rock on, folks. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>